Well, I'm glad to be here, and I am so glad to get back into this sermon series, thanking Pastor Tim Van Summeren last week for uh, his message as he closed down chapter 5. Can I encourage you right now, let's do it together. This is actually one of my favorite parts of ministry. Get your Bibles out, page 810, I think, in the Bible in your pew. And let's get your Bibles open to a new chapter. This is exciting. We've been 19 weeks in chapter 5. Now we're flipping it over to chapter 6. And we're working our way through the greatest sermon that has ever preached. And while you're opening it up to your Bible up to Matthew chapter 6, listen, it's the first book in the New Testament. So if you're not familiar with where it is, just find the New Testament and just go six chapters in. You're going to find it very quickly. And while you're doing that, let me tell you about the writer Thomas Lamont. And he wrote this. Now, you got to get this. And this is, by the way, going to set the stage for what we're going to see from Jesus today. He writes, several years back, I was in the living room as a child listening to the radio when my dad came in from outside shoveling snow. And he said to me, Son, in 24 hours, you won't even remember what you're listening to right now. So how about doing something for the next 20 minutes that you will remember the next 20 years? I promise that you'll enjoy enjoy it every time you think of it. So he asks, Tom does, what is it? His father said, well, son, there are several inches of snow on Mrs. Brown's walks. Why don't you go see if you can shovel it off and get home without her ever knowing you did it? Now, did you get that? Without her ever knowing you did it. Thomas writes, I did the walk in about 15 minutes. She never knew who did the job. My dad was right. It's been a lot more than 20 years since I did that. And I have enjoyed that memory every time I've thought about it. Now, you might immediately be thinking, okay, kind of cute story, maybe, but uh, I don't know, it really didn't impact me too much. Well, get that part of it. Every time I've thought about it, get that, because he enjoyed it so much because she never knew he did it. So here we go. I'm going to come back to that point. Jesus began, he began this great sermon. Do you remember? I'm going to just give you a fast rewind of the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to take about a minute and a half. He started talking in the Beatitudes. Just look in your Bible for a second. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. He's talking about the character that he's going to form in his disciples. He is preaching to his disciples first. There's a multitude hearing, but he's training a group of men to become just like himself. And he's going to weave the character that you see in those Beatitudes. He's going to weave them into him. And what what are they going to look like? They're going to be poor in spirit. They're going to mourn over their sin. They're going to be meek of heart. They're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to be full of mercy. They're going to be pure in heart. They're going to be peacemakers. They're going to learn to have joy right in the midst of persecution. That's character. But then he moved in verse 13 to the calling that he has for every one of his disciples. So if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is your calling. It's my calling as well. We do it from different platforms. We do it in different contexts. But our calling is simply this. We need to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he moved to the condition of every one of his disciples. And that condition in verse uh, 17 through 20 is that our righteousness 
must exceed that of the Pharisees. We've got to be righteous. And how do we be made righteous? We're going to look at that in the sermon. But we've got to be righteous. We've got to have a heart that is declared right before God. And then we saw in verses 21 through 48 the conduct that his disciples must have, all of us. And he, he showed this to us in six ways. They're not comprehensive. They're six ways that our righteousness must exceed the Pharisees in real life. We've got to have hearts that move to peacefulness, not murder. That was number one. We've got to have pure hearts, not lustful hearts. Number two, we've got to have hearts that are faithful, that don't move to divorce and marriage. We've got to have hearts, number four, that are truthful, not full of lies. Hearts that surrender to difficult people, not seek revenge. And hearts that can love even our enemies. That's the conduct of his disciples. But guess what? He's going to move to a totally different section. He's got a completely brand new point. And what he's going to be doing is laying out for the rest of this sermon until the last couple verses the commands he has for his disciples. So we've seen his character. We've seen the calling. We've seen the condition. We've seen the conduct. Now from here on out in this sermon series, we're going to see the commands that Jesus has for everyone that are his disciples. This is what he requires for those whose hearts have been made righteous through Christ. Now, I told you I was going to talk about righteousness a little bit more. So let's talk about it just a little bit. So I really need your attention. We're going to get into this sermon. We're going to really get into it deeply. But before we do, let me just get you ready for it. God will never ask you to do something that he will not give you the want and the power to do it. Now, if actually, if you're going to walk out of here today hearing nothing else but one thing, I guess I would say maybe this is the one thing you want to hold on to. God will give you the want to, the desire, and the power to do every single thing he'll ask you to do. So we don't have a God that will give you a command and then leave you on your own to figure out how to do it and how to want to do it. I mean, don't we all know the problem is, if you're a parent, you see this in your children. You can see this in Christianity and serving God. The problem mostly is the want to. I mean, I honestly don't always want to do what God wants me to do. In fact, I want to do something different. Every time we sin... Now think about that for a moment, because I'm pretty sure not any of us made it through this last week without sinning. And sinning is not just doing things you should not have done or not doing the things you should have done. That's too, unfortunately, too superficial. It's how we tend to define sin. It's actually deeper than that. It's a heart that says, God, I actually don't want to do what you want me to do. I, I want to do what I want to do. And so, Lord, I'm going to rebel, and I'm going to defy, and I'm going to come up on, the, up on the throne of my life, and I'm going to take over and call the shots, and I'm going to execute and manage my world. That's the world of sin. So whether that was through something you shouldn't have looked at, or said, or you cheated, or you lost your integrity, or you defied an authority, whatever that might be, in every single case, your heart rebelled against God, 
defying him, cosmic treason, and said, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want it more than what, I want, than what you want. See, that's the problem with sin. So let's go back to that. God will never ask you to do something that he will not give you the want to and the power to do it. Let's put it in the positive. He's always going to give you the desire and the power to do what he commands. But you got to walk with him. Now, you need to know this because like you, we, myself, we go through things that are incredibly, sometimes ridiculously difficult. Obedience has an incredible cost to it. You mean let go of the anger towards the person that has hurt me so deeply? God, are you really asking me to do that? I can't do that. You can't do that in your flesh. You can do that in the spirit of God. And he will give you the want to, the desire, and then the power to be able to do it. Now, you might be asking, if you're really listening and really in tune to this message, okay, well, Tim, that sounds good. You should put it on a t-shirt, maybe. But really, where does the Word of God say that? Well, let me give you, I think, the clearest, or at least one of the clearest places where God's Word teaches exactly what I just said. It's in Philippians 2. And I'm going to read it to you from the Living Bible Translation because it puts it so accessibly to anybody. Here's what it says. Dearest friends, he's speaking to Christians, Paul is. When I was there with you, you were always so careful to follow my instructions. And now that I am away, you must be even more careful to do the things that result from being saved. Obeying God with deep reverence shrinking back from all that might displease him. Now listen to this part. For God is at work within you, helping you want to obey him, and then helping you do what he wants. So listen, you cannot ever, Christian, you got to hear this, you cannot ever believe the lie that you were helplessly sinning. Sin is always a choice for the Christian. We have a new nature. We've been given a new heart. We are righteous. We are saints, the holy ones, the hagios, the hagias in the Greek. We are new creatures in God's sight. And we have the Spirit of God that has come into those new hearts, and He is funneling into us by the power of the Spirit, the want to. And the power to do what he's asking. So we're going to get to all of these commands in the Sermon on the Mount. And what you need to know is this. These commands are going to be not optional. These are not suggestions from Jesus. These are not, you know, try it for a week and see if you like it. These are commands from God. Jesus, the Son of God. But he will never command anybody to do anything that he will not give you the desire and the power to fulfill. Armed with that in your mind, pound it in in there. You got to get it deep. Let's start looking at what this sermon says. The first thing we're going to see is this in verse 1 of chapter 6. We've got to look at our hearts. We have to look at our hearts. Look at what he says in in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, some people are going to wonder, 
Well, why did he say chapter 5, verse 16? Now, go back in your Bible, just one page, if you would. You remember here, there he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And all of a sudden, in chapter 1, he's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. I mean, is he speaking? Is Jesus speaking out of both sides of his mouth? The difference, here it is, the difference between those two verses is simply motivation. Now, are you hearing that? This is utterly critical that we get this. When we say, or when I'm telling you, we've got to look at our hearts. What I mean and what Jesus is going to teach is we've got to look at what's motivating us. Do you understand, brother and sister, that at every single moment, every word you speak, every action you make, is coming from your greatest desire in your heart at that moment. Let's say that you yell at your parent or you yell at your spouse and you have a big fight and when you make up, you say this, you know what, that wasn't me. That's a lie. That's a lie, even more so because that really was you speaking and fighting. It's a lie because that truly was your greatest desire in that moment. And what the gospel does is kill the flesh's desire. And what the Spirit of God does is wage war against it and begin putting into our hearts God's desires. So as we walk with Him, we delight in Him, He will give us the desires of our heart. Meaning, His desires will flood our hearts. So we'll want what He wants and hate what He hates. So every single thing we do is coming from the greatest desire, the motivating desire that is in our hearts in that moment. You have to remember that. Otherwise, you will justify and you will excuse sin and you will not have the power of the gospel to kill it. If you want to change your life, if you want transformation, then you've got to own up. You've got to own up. It's my desire and my motivations. That's the problem. The why we do it is just as important as what we do. You've got to get to the why. So Jesus says, beware. You know what that word means? It means pay constant attention you got to pay constant attention to what is motivating you making sure we are not being motivated look what he says in verse one in order to be seen by others do you see that's what's the difference between chapter 5 16 and verse 1 of chapter 6 in chapter 5 in verse 16 it was to bring glory to god in verse 1 it's in order to be seen by others in other words you want attention to you when you think of glory just think of a flashlight super high powered that you just shine and light up god that's what it means to bring glory to god that your actions don't end with you they go through you to god what an amazing god tim ackley has because not too many people do what he just did and what an amazing God you have because not too many people do what you just did. That's how we give glory to God. Our actions light him up. His character is seen through what we do and what we say. But when it ends with us, when I do things so that others can see me, then I get the glory, I get the fame, I get the credit. God gets none. My motivation is selfish. And we're going to see that I just lost rewards. Now, I want you to, to get in your Bible for a second in verse 1. Look at that phrase, to be seen. Three words in the English. It's only one word in the Greek. 
And it gives us our word, theater. How many of you enjoy going to Broadway shows? I have to tell you, I've never been to one. I am culturally inept. But one day, Lord willing, before I die, I want to get to a Broadway show. But some of you, I, we have a lot of people in our church that seem to love to go to them. They love theater. Well, that's what this word, to be seen, it's the word theater. So here's what it means, ready? To be, to be seen by men means that you put yourself up on stage and all of their eyes go to you. Now, the context that we're going to see soon is how to give to the needy. Don't give to the needy in such a way that you're up on a platform and people are amazed at you and not amazed at God. So if we live, though, now listen, I'm going to tell you how deeply this is in a few minutes. But if we live for the praise and the honor of others, then we, look what Jesus says, we will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So all we do, all Tim Ackley does, all you do, must be for the glory of God. How do you do that? Do you just walk around with the constant verbal affirmation to God, be the glory? Do you really think that that actually brings glory to God? A lot of Christians do this. I kind of honestly, I don't know, maybe I do it once in a while, but I kind of think it's awkward Somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I really, really appreciated that sermon. Oh, all glory to God. Well, I, I want to mean that, of course, but saying it seems awkward. How about I just preach the word of God the way he intends, and he gets the glory then? See, if I really preach it the right way, preach it the way he wants me to preach it, preach it faithfully to the word, he is going to be lifted up because I'll never look that good in this. I'm never going to really come out smelling like roses. God is going to come out and he's going to be famous. It's the same way for you in your life. You go to work and your boss says, you know what? You did a really good job today. Well, all glory goes to God. Well, you can say that. But I don't think your boss is going to erupt in a vertical praise. How about just do your work with excellence, with integrity, the way that God wants you to do your work. And guess what? Give a reason for it. When the opportunity comes, he's going to get the glory. If we live for praise from people, if it's intoxicating to us, then we will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Do you, know, do you understand that we have an incredible ability to rob God of glory? Do you really know that? I mean, listen, let's just really get it down to the depth. Can you see when you're robbing God of glory? I mean, it's one thing to say it. That's sort of philosophical. But can you actually see it when you do it? When you maneuver conversations so that there will be a compliment coming... You're robbing God of glory. You're getting it for you. When you're working at work, really, honestly, chiefly for the motivation to get a raise and a promotion so you can have more authority or it looks good on your resume, you can get to the six-figure figures income. Listen, that's for you. That's not yet for God. There are incredible ways that we rob our God of glory. And we've got to look at our hearts to see when we're doing it. Now, what Jesus is going to do as we go to point number two, over the next two weeks, we're going to see there were three main ways 
that the Jewish people demonstrated their religious piety. Almsgiving, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. And we're going to look at those each week until we get them done over the next two weeks. Today we're going to look at the almsgiving, the, need, the giving to the poor. So point number two, give with a pure heart. So first we've got to look at our hearts, examine them. Where's that motivation really coming from? Where is it moving us? But look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy... Now, you're ready? Now, look at me. Ready? This is, this is absolutely, incredibly explosive, what I'm going to tell you. Now, you're going to think it's underwhelming, but I'm telling you, it's huge. Giving to the needy is not an option for the Christian. Or he would have said, if you give to the needy. He's assuming, Christian that this is something you've already woven into your life. He didn't say if you give to the needy, when you give to the needy. So the question that you want to ask yourself, the question I've been asking myself, am I an active and generous giver to the poor and needy? Giving to the poor, listen, it was held, giving to the poor was held so highly by the Jews. I'm going to read you a couple ways that they corrupted it though, but it was so highly held by the Jews, that it became one of the greatest ways you can show how righteous you were. That there was the problem. Here's a Jewish statement. Greater is he who gives alms than he who offers all sacrifices. That's their mindset to giving. Alms are gifts to the poor. In fact, the Jewish people used the same word for righteousness that they did for almsgiving. Did, that, did you get that? Or did, I hope that didn't slide by you. The same word they had for righteousness is the word they used for almsgiving. So what they did was they said this, they taught this, that when I give to the poor, when I give to the needy, I am actually making myself righteous. Do you see how it was corrupted? Now, I'm going to tell you an example. I'll give you an example of what I heard recently. You know what? Let's say that Jesus says, you know, you got a hundred foot bar that you got to get over if you want to make it to heaven. Let's just say he did. And you practice and you train and you practice and you train and you can get to maybe five feet eight feet, if you're a professional pole vaulter, maybe 18 or 20 feet. But you cannot get to 100 feet. So what are you going to do? Well, the only one that's ever cleared the 100-foot bar was Jesus. He never sinned in this allegory. He never sinned in this metaphor. He's the only one that cleared it. So what he's not asking is that you and I find a way to clear the 100-foot bar. How about, he says, if we put our trust in the one who did clear it and his righteousness will be given to us? And that's really the whole point. You can't make yourself righteous by trying harder to obey the word of God. But what they did, what the Pharisees and the scribes did, let's stay with the, the picture, the, uh, the figurative 100-foot bar that I'm talking about. Here's what they did. They lowered it to 8-foot. Some of them lowered it to 6-foot. You take the word of God, the expectations of God, the commands of God, and you lower them, and then all of a sudden you can clear the bar. That's what they were doing with almsgiving. 
They lowered the bar until they could clear it and said, look, I made it over the bar. I am righteous. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're not looking at your heart. You've got a corrupt heart, a motivation that wants to bring glory to yourself. But I'm going to teach you really what it means to be righteous. Here's what the Jewish people said. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Listen, are you seeing that on the screen? Are you getting this? If you didn't see it, look at the screen. This is what they're saying. I'll just give money to the poor and I will be saved from my sin. There's only one way to be made righteous and that is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Bible is clear that God desires us to be generous to the poor. So let's ask really quickly before we move on. Now, you're the only one that can answer this. I have no idea what you do with your money. By the way, I don't look at any of the giving records other than the bottom line on the financial reports. So I don't know what anybody gives other than my own family, and we give electronically. So let me just ask, knowing that it's just between you and God, and think way beyond putting money into our church baskets. This is way beyond that. Do you right now in your life give actively and generously to the poor? Now, you might have a lot of things swirling around in there. I'm going to once I get that raise or when I start making more money. I don't make a lot of money now. The bills are tight. I'm not asking you that. That's faith. you got to give by faith. But do you right now give generously, actively, to the poor for no other reason than because you love them. You want to know how do you bring glory to God? You love people in his name. Are you doing well with that little self-assessment or are you not doing well? Listen, if you're doing well, here's your only right response. God, thank you for giving me that desire. And if you're not doing well, your only right response is one of confession and saying, God, would you give me that desire? Would you give me that motivation? Because right now, this is not pleasing. It's not if you give to the needy. It's when God wants generous disciples. But he wants generous disciples who, verse 2 When they give, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now look at verse 2. Look at that word hypocrites. You want to see something pretty cool? Here's how you, by the way, study the Word of God and you organize it. Look at verse 5 and look at verse 16. Same chapter. You see the same word. You see the same thoughts. Loss of reward. Received your reward already. This is how you know. He's talking about three things. First, first verse, he talks about right motives, and then he's going to give three illustrations. The first one is almsgiving, and then it's going to be prayer, and then it's going to be fasting. And he talks about being hypocrites. You know, the word actually originally designated a stage actor in Greek theater that would put on different masks to, to uh, change characters, switch roles. When they moved into another role, they just took another mask on a stick and put it up and then spoke their lines. That's how they did it. The hypocrite was the actor changing the mask. And we use the word, right? We use the word to to describe someone who says one thing and does another. Church is full of hypocrites, right? So is the entire world. 
Welcome to church. That's where hypocrites should be welcome. And let's work on being faithful, single-minded rather than double. But here's how Jesus uses hypocrites. He uses it differently. He's describing those who did the right things but from corrupt motives. So if you want to understand what, what did Jesus mean by calling them hypocrites all through this chapter, what he's saying is you're doing the right thing, you're giving money to the poor, but you've got corrupt motivation. You've got to get to the gospel. The gospel will lay bare your heart. It will show you why you're doing what you're doing. And it will give you the power to do what God wants you to do. It'll give you the want to and the power to do it. But don't blow your own trumpet. By the way, this, there's no evidence that that literally happened. They didn't have trumpets like brass trumpets. They had shofars. But nobody blew a trumpet. Nobody blew a shofar to announce their giving. That's really not the point. It's more of a, a proverb, a, a hyperbole. It means do not toot your own horn. Don't bring yourself praise. That's all he's saying. The scribes and the Pharisees, they gave in order to gain what they craved. Honor and praise. They loved it. It was an elixir to them. You know, there were in the court of women in the uh, temple in Jerusalem, the court of women had 13 boxes on, in it that were, if you took a trumpet and you put it on its end so that the, the fluted part was up and the mouthpiece was down and it drops into a bucket, that's what they're that's what their giving baskets looked like in the court of the women. Pretty big ones. And they were metal. And so what you would do, what the Pharisees described, they had perfected this, by the way. It's amazing. They would take their coins, which were not perfectly round. They were minted very irregularly, very kind of almost rough edges. And they would take their half shekels, heavy coins, the heavier the better, because they would take it and they would flip it just so on the rim of those trumpet-shaped boxes and would swirl around, sorry to use this imagery, like a toilet flushing. No, that was terrible. All right, get that one out of your head. Just think of a coin going around the rim deeper and deeper and deeper until, listen, it drops into the bottom with a heavy thunk. And in that court of women, it's reverberating around the entire room. And watch, all eyes snap to the one that just dropped all of those heavy coins in it. That's how they did it. They had perfected this. They could give in such a way as to pretend not to notice, but get everybody to watch. Because they loved praise and they loved honor. You know what? I'm not so sure we're that much different. Let's take it beyond the offering. Let's take it to me. Years ago, I was speaking at a Christian camp. And uh, during the afternoon, we had free time. And during the free time, I loved to fish. They had a really nice stocked lake on the camp. So it was free time, and people were out in the boats fishing. And, and I'm virtually the only one fishing from the bank. I didn't have access to a boat, so I'm fishing. And, and I'm watching, and nobody's catching fish. Nobody. I started catching fish. And I'm underneath some of the, the overhanging branches, and I'm, I'm casting sideways to get the lure out there, and they're biting on that thing. And you know what? It's really not that hard to bring a perch or an 11-inch bass smallmouth in pretty quickly. But I decided to kind of let it fight a little bit. You know why? 
because it made a lot of noise. And I kind of, out of the corner of my eye, was watching everybody in the boats. And they're all looking at me and pointing. Because I'm bringing in five, six, seven of these fish, one after another. And all of a sudden, and this is a true story, all of a sudden, I'm bringing in the last one. And all of a sudden, God sent a missile to my heart. I said, why are you doing that? And you know, in the old, you know, the flesh rears back and goes, well, God, I'm just enjoying your creation, catching your fish. He goes, really, why are you doing that? You know that deep whisper that goes like Elijah right into the heart? You really don't have a defense against God. And all of a sudden I said, God, I'm doing this for my honor, for my glory. And I took the fishing rod, tied it up, and went back to the cabin. You know, and I wish I could tell you that I don't do that anymore, that I don't really want praise anymore. It used to be years ago when I first became lead pastor in 2007, I used to come into the sanctuary right a little bit after the church service started, and eyes would snap to me, and people would be pointing out who I was to their friends, and there's deeply inside me this little whispery, seductive good feeling. Until God began to say, why are you doing that? Why do you want this to be about you? Why do you need praise and honor from people? And I began confessing this out of my heart. I began asking God, Lord, I need the gospel to change my desires. I don't want what you don't want me to want. I want to want what you want me to want. So Lord, change my desires because I know my new desires will have new motivations that result in right and new behavior. And God has been doing that for me. It's to the point now where I honestly don't like attention. That's a work of the gospel. And I am so thankful for it. But God has to open our eyes to it. Now I want you to look at verse 2. Notice what Jesus said about those who give in order to gain praise and honor from other people. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You know, Spurgeon said, no one can expect to take his or her reward twice. You know what he's saying is this, listen, if you get reward, if you get honor and praise from people for something you're doing, that's the only source you're ever going to get because you won't get it from God. You can't take your reward twice. So what's motivating our giving, if it's earthly praise and honor, then that's the only reward you're going to get. And that word have, if I were you, I'd underline it, put it in your margin. It meant, or it described a ship that was holding just offshore. In other words, your ship will never come in of rewards for eternity if all you want is the praise of people. God will hold it back. The word reward actually here means pay for service, meaning you get what you had coming. You earned it. You got the praise of men. You're not going to get anything from, from the Heavenly Father. You know, there was, go back to that Jewish temple for a second in Jerusalem. You know, they had a room, a very small, off-to-the-side room that you could get to. It was called the Chamber of the Silence. Try to remember this, the chamber of the silence. It was a room where you could go to without anybody ever knowing or noticing and put money into a basket. And it's a room where you could go to if you were in great need without anybody ever knowing, without the humiliation and the shame to take some money out of the basket to cover some things you need that you didn't have the money for. 
It's called the chamber of the silence. And this is really what God is saying. But give for God's glory because you love people. Don't give with a motivation that you will gain praise and honor. You know, in 1997, I will never forget this. We were struggling financially. We had just arrived here a year before. We're living on South Side, and we had barely the money. Denise and I, we had two children at the time, barely the money to pay our bills. In fact, we had bills coming, and we did not know how we were going to be able to pay it. And we began to pray, God, you know everything we need. We don't have a way to get more money. And we don't know how we can pay this. We're just going to trust you. Do you know, I've only experienced this once. I went out to the mailbox. I did. Denise usually does. I went out that day to the mailbox. And there in the mailbox was a letter postmarked Lehigh Valley, no return address, and inside $800, eight $100 bills. I mean, who does that? Who sends cash through the postal system? No offense. Don't know if it's going to get there. I don't know who that was. I still don't know who that was. That was 20 years ago. But that money covered the bills that we had coming. God knew he moved somebody who was generous, who loved to give to the needy, to do it in a way that nobody would even know about it. And that's what we needed for that time. Do you understand that God knows exactly what you need at all times? You don't need to worry. You just need to call out to your father and ask him to help. So he instructs us how to give in a way that's pure in heart, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So some people take this, by the way, maybe you do, some people take it this way. We've got to only give cash into the church basket. Because Jesus says, nobody can know, not even my left hand, what I'm giving. So we're going to fold the check in ten places, and we're going to cover it up so it can't flop open. And somebody Listen, that's really not what Jesus is saying. That's fine if you do that, but that's not what this passage is really thinking or, or speaking. What he's teaching is to give to the needy with pure motives without yourself in mind. You can't give for reputation or honor. You don't give to get your name on a brick of a church or the side of a building. We give to those in need without thinking that we did our good deed for the week and now we can get on with living for ourselves. And really what he's saying is this. Let your giving be so natural that it really doesn't create an exceptional blip on the radar of your life. This is just the way you live. If you see a need and God has blessed you, you meet it. It's not a big thing. It doesn't need a a curtain call for you. It's just the way God's told you to live and you do it. It's to give without an internal ledger that goes like this. I gave to you last year and you're only getting help from me once. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about forgetfulness. If you're in need again, and you're not, it's not irresponsible living, you're just in a need again, and I can meet it, well, here I go. There are some people, that you probably met some of them, who are generous, but when they give, they pull a power card over you. It puts them in a position over you, and it creates within you a sense of indebtedness to them. And they kind of whispery, Pull the card out once in a while. 
They feel that they are owed respect and honor. And if you don't thank them enough, they actually get angry. Well, that's, that's really not what Jesus is giving. You give to a, with a motive that says, I love you and that I'm going to give this to you without really any fanfare. You just simply have a need and I can meet it. So I should meet it and give God all the glory for it. I don't keep a book in my mind. God keeps a book. He's the bookkeeper. And he's the only bookkeeper there ought to be. In fact, you're going to see a little bit of it in Matthew 25. Here's what Jesus says. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was, an, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous who are forgetful givers whose left hands don't know what their right hands are doing answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see see you sick or in prison and visit you. That's what it means to give with your left hand, not knowing your, what your right hand's doing. It is self-forgetfulness. You don't even remember doing it. But God does. And you know what his answer was? He says, when you gave to the least of these, you gave to me. So when you give to a needy person, because you have a motivation... This is, I want to be like Jesus. And so you give and sometimes sacrificially and always forgetfully and without fanfare and self-praise and honor. When you do that, you're really giving to Jesus. And he will keep the books. And one day, there will be a reward for you. And that moves us to the, the third point. How do you give with a pure heart? How do we do this? It's not an option, right? It's not if you give to the needy, when? How do we do it in a right way? Well, there's two powerful truths that are almost hidden in this last verse, verse 4. And the first one is this. Our Heavenly Father is watching. Look at verse 4. And your Father who sees in secret. There is not one thought, one action, one time of giving or withholding that God does not see. Now, listen, I know that was absolutely not new thinking for you. I understand that. But maybe this is. So let me take it a little bit different direction. I'm going to illustrate it through this. This last week, I was trying to get a little bit more done on my sermon. I was working from home. I was on the couch. And my son, Andy, 11 years old, he was a few feet away. He's out by the kitchen. He's got it loaded up with superhero action figures. He plays so well with those and he's asking me all these questions of superheroes, and I'm trying to study for this sermon and write it, and I'm sort of grunting and giving monosyllables, and finally Andy looks at me and says, Dad, you're not listening to me, are you? I answered, well, Andy, I was partially, but then he asked me, well, what was I just saying? I said, oh, not good, not good. Now, I want you to take my imperfect fathering right there, and then... Contrast it with God's perfect fathering this way. You ready? There is not ever a moment in the day that we do not have God's full, undivided attention. That is mind-boggling. Because you and I cannot do this. God can. 7.5 billion people on this planet. 
you don't have one in 7.5 billionth of his attention. You've got all of it. Every single moment. Not only does your heavenly father see everything you do and every, everything you, you say and, and everything that's going on in your heart, he has all of his attention on it at every single moment. Have you ever thought of that? The, the Latin experts used to call it Coram Deo, living before the face of God. And he always sees in secret, which is what Jesus is getting at. He sees all the way down to the bottom of the heart. Nothing gets by him. Now, for some of us, that's sort of irritating or frightening to know that God is watching over us with every bit of his attention. The sight and the attention of God, by the way, it's going to be absolutely terrifying to the unsaved in the end times. Here's what they're going to pray. They're going to call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of, of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But you can't hide from God. But for you, Christian, for me, his attention must become welcome and beautiful and longed for. If you want to learn to give with a pure heart, then you invite God's attention. God, what is my motivation right now? That little flutter of irritation that's in me because somebody is needing something from me and asking for it. God, where's that coming from? Is that coming from your spirit? Likely not. But there's a second point in that verse, and this is going to be our final point. How do you give with a pure heart? It's to know this, our Heavenly Father loves to reward us. Now we don't think about this enough. It feels selfish to think about this. And yet it's all through the Bible. The reason that we can give with a pure heart is that we've got a God who not only loves us, He loves to reward us when we please him it's trusting your divine accountant your bookkeeper so well you don't need to you don't need to check the ledgers have i already given to you are you asking too much of me well if i'm irritated i'm checking the ledger it's to meet every need that we are able to meet and leave the bookkeeping to God. It's to give with self-forgetfulness. How? Because you know God sees everything. There's a reward coming from you. Listen, do you live, Christian, now in order to gain reward for eternity? Why would you not? Do you know what you're going to do with your rewards? Do you think it's going to give you a bigger home in heaven? That's not what's going to happen. There's one big palatial estate with many rooms. Well, do you think you're getting the penthouse suite? Because you're really obedient. That's not what the rewards are going to be for. The rewards in heaven are for you to cast them at the feet of our heavenly father and Jesus Christ. And to praise him and exalt him. It's when you give him your very best. It literally changed my life when Jerry Falwell preached. I don't want to stand before God and have one little reward to cast at his feet. I want a truckload of obedience by his grace. That changed my life in 1986. As for the rich in this present age, Paul wrote to young Pastor Timothy, do good, to be, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, look what he writes, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. 
Listen, you should be storing up, I should be storing up treasures for ourselves as a foundation for the future. This is a thoroughly, biblically saturated concept. In case you're missing it, Proverbs says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. So how do we give with a pure heart? Well, first of all, it's to realize God sees everything and his full attention is on us. And secondly, the reason, or at least one of the reasons he sees everything with full attention is so that he can reward us. He is a rewarding father. Now I'm going to end with this. It's going to take me about 40 seconds. The disciples of Jesus, it's us, and that's them at the Sermon on the Mount. We must learn to live from our hearts, checking our motivation. Giving to the needy is not optional, but it is directional. Meaning it cannot be for our own glory and honor, but it must be vertically for the glory of God. And how does that work? When you truly love the needy and you give to them. For God sees with full attention everything we do and think. And he is ready to reward and bless his children for eternity. Amen? Now let me close with this thought. What do you do with this message? First thing you do is go back and check it. Is what he said, is what Tim said, right? Secondly, you ask God, God, is there something I need to see to change my life? That's what you do with this message. And I would invite you to do that. Let's pray.